Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of the E3 Podcast, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This season, we're going to talk about building science, female entrepreneurship, and the built environment. Prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast. This is season four. And today I have the pleasure of being on with Eric G around the house with Eric G and Carolyn. Uh, No Carolyn today, but that's okay. We'll catch up with her later. So we're going to have Eric G tell us who he is and what he's doing. Get a little West Coast action on the podcast this week. Um, And so let's just catch up. Eric, tell everybody who you are. Yeah, I'm out here. And by the way, thanks for having me, Emily. We're out here in Portland, Oregon, the other Portland, for all you mean people out there. I've heard the horror stories, by the way, of people going to Portland and then realize they went to the wrong Portland. Ooh. Have you heard of that on the airplane? I've heard of that one. I- I've never had anybody have that happen before. Uh, that's not so great. No, it's not like they're close. <laughs> it's not like they're close. But I'm the host of Around the House with Eric G and Caroline B. We've been doing this show Well, I haven't been doing the show this long, but we're in our 34th year of production. I am the fourth host and it's my show. And Caroline is the co-host on this. She does a great job with me on there. And we do a radio show, national radio show and podcast. The show is syndicated nationally with talk media networks or across the U S on radio stations. And of course we've got the long form version of that on the radio. My background is actually 30 years of uh, interior design and construction so I'm a certified kitchen designer, and uh, I have been doing that for the last 30 years. So that's been my jam of running remodeling companies, cabinet shops, that kind of stuff. Yeah, very, very cool. And I had the pleasure to be on with you guys last month uh, on on your podcast. So so that was awesome, and thank you for having me. So anybody here who hasn't checked it out yet, go check out what they've been up to. Lots of great content, and I'm always happy to share other people who are doing cool things uh, out there in the market, just making the building world better one day at a time. And and Carolyn B is actually on the East Coast, so you guys actually handle. Uh, both the East and West coast on your show, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. She's uh, known as America's healthy home expert and uh, she'd be on here right now, but she's doing uh, consultations with clients that she had set up that uh, talking about uh, where's that mold in the house. Yeah. So we're going to have to do a whole show with her on where's that mold in the house. Cause everybody wants to know that. Right. I feel like we talk about that all the time. I don't know how many shows you guys have done on mold. It's like, let's talk about mold again. Oh, and every time we get messages, people going, oh, it was funny. Uh, no joke. Two weeks ago, I had two emails that came in in one week that was, hey, you guys haven't talked about mold. I really need to know about mold. I'm like, we just talked about mold, but okay, we'll talk about mold again. So we'll be talking about mold again. <laughs> it's the never ending topic. It is. It is. It is. But it's a never ending problem as well. So we'll keep going with it as long as people want to hear it. Well, and it's a new problem too, right? Because we have different problems depending on the age of your structure, when you have it, what's causing your mold, what our new products are, what's, you know, what's in the products that we have that we're asking to be mold resistant, right? Because that that's mm-hmm. like a whole new hot topic too, you know, indoor air quality. It's like, okay, I'm asking this product to be mold resistant. Well, what kind of chemicals do I have to put in it so that it doesn't grow mold? And to me, those are... Those are the fascinating and, and cool questions, but at the same time, 
it's also the frustrating because it's like, okay, we've created this thing to try to prevent this other thing instead of just trying to eliminate the things that cause, you know, exactly. I mean, there's, there's mold in everything. There's mold spores in our outdoor air, right? Like it's just part of our environment, but especially in my time, environment. Yeah. Right. Oh, but it's, it's crazy. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to take care of mold, but we're going to blow the VOC level through the roof because we're battling mold. Right. And let's create that problem instead. And I hope that these products have like enzymes or something in them versus we're just going to make this a completely non-livable surface for anything. That way mold never grows on it, but I'm supposed to live with it. Yeah, right. I'm going to trap that in my house now that my house is super tight. And <laughs> But don't worry, I won't have mold. I'll just have lots of toxic VOCs. You know, Emily, one of the biggest problems we're seeing, I'm seeing in new homes in my area, because I'm in Portland, Oregon, where we get a lot of rain, and we don't always get the most rain in the United States, but we many times have a lot of the many days of rain where it's just that kind of misty drizzle all day. So everything's wet all day, but we don't get, you know, more than like an eighth of an inch of measurable rain, but we still had 24 hours of rain. So it's always like you're in a mister, but I'm seeing now these new big homes that are being built where, you know, the, the garage is attached, it's finished and insulated. It's already in there but it's not conditioned. And, you know, I've talked about it before, but I'll walk down, be walking the dog in the morning and I see the garage with the big 16 foot garage door. You got the nine foot one next to it for the three car garage. And I can see through the frosted glass that water is running down on the inside of the glass. Like it's a summertime glass of lemonade on the, on the, on the table. And it's just running water down there. And of course, everybody's stuff stored inside there. You know, what's going to happen. That's just the recipe for disaster. Yeah, undoubtedly. It, and we're changing that a lot too, right? First, nobody had garages. Then they had garages and they kept things maybe dry or, you know, yeah. w whatever. But it was uninsulated, unconditioned, dry out, whatever. And now we've got insulated but not conditioned spaces. Or in some places in the country, uh, they're talking about everybody has an air-conditioned garage. And I can't even fathom having an air-conditioned garage. But at the same time, having a garage that's conditioned and tempered is going to, you know, solve some of the issues that you're having, which is mold. And it's like, oh, it's this catch 22 is like the better we build things, the more we have to condition them. And then are we trying to condition them? And I had the same conversation this morning. We were on the job site and, you know, this is Maine. So people don't think about it. And I said, yeah. you know, we need to, you know, we need to talk about a dehumidifier. And the builder's like, oh, well, the basement's going to be dry. And I was like, I am not worried about your water management skills. I was like, you will make this basement as water trait as you can, but let's talk about shoulder seasons. And the client says, well, what's a shoulder season? I was like, this is a shoulder season. You don't really need to run the heat today because it's not really that cold, but the humidity level is going to be higher in your basement because your basement is going to be cooler. And now you're going to have this condensing surface and you got cool, fun stuff in the basement, just like in your garages, you know, basements, that's where I'm going to put my boxes and whatever. And now I've got food for my mold and I've got this mostly unconditioned space, but it's insulated, but it's not really conditioned. And I got this excess moisture and we're, we're coming out of our dry season, right? Where everybody's running humidifiers and whatever. It's like, we might have excess moisture in the house. And I was like, so, you know, we need to talk to you about 
what your interior humidity levels should be, where the places are that you're going to have those spaces, whether or not you really just need to condition this space all the time, whether or not you need a dehumidifier, you know, and this is our April weather, our September weather is way worse, right? Where it's starting to get really comfortable temperature wise. And we're used to getting over a little bit slightly warmer, but the humidity is still just through the roof, you know, it's like trying to explain that to people and how that affects the different parts of their house. And, you know, the builders like, well, you know, we, we build dry basements. I was like, that's not what we're talking about here. And I hope you build dry basements because I don't want you to have a sump pump and I don't (laughs) want you to not put my vapor barrier down. And I don't want you to not put waterproofing on the exterior of my foundation. If we're talking about those things, then we need to have a much bigger conversation. That's a whole other cock. That's a whole other talk right there. I mean, it's funny. And I'm curious to see, you know, like I go down, I didn't make it this year just because of schedule, but I love going down to like world of concrete. And I see down there, some of these new products out there, there are new additives you can put into concrete that makes it so moisture does not come through it. It makes it non-penetrable. So it's a mix of ad mix that they drop in the concrete that makes technically water and moisture proof concrete. Now it's still going to be a cold surface that condenses, but in theory, you're not going to see moisture coming through that. Even if there's a, a vapor barrier on the outside, it doesn't really matter if that fails then you can put an ad mix in. So I'm curious to see if these things take off across the country because I saw that a few years ago and I was like, Oh, that could be kind of cool. I have so many more questions now though. So like concrete and having water in the concrete to create strength and to make it flexible so that it's flat and it's smooth. And then the concrete dries out. And if you have concrete that doesn't let water through it, does it all dry out or how does that set <laughs> or how does this work? And, you know, now up here, because it's cold up here, we want a totally thermally broken yep. uh, assembly, right? So I want insulation. So it's not touching my footing. And so it's not touching mm-hmm. my foundation wall. And so now how much tighter does my detail have to be on the other things? If I've got something that doesn't dry at all. Oh my gosh. See, See? it's a whole different <laughs> rabbit hole to dive down into. It is, but it's a fun rabbit hole. It's the fun yeah. things that you want to think of because that's how we get cool, new, innovative products that might be the right things for us to be using, especially if some of these admixtures are created with recycled things that we're no longer putting in other places, right? That's the cool stuff or, you know, the, the CO2 being put back into the concrete so that you can reduce the amount of carbon that's in your concrete. So CO2 is not going into the atmosphere. I mean, there are so many cool things. Is it worth it? Is it, you know, like, is it, (laughs) is it better? It's the whole electric car thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. we definitely want electric cars. We want to get off of fossil fuels, but making batteries is also not carbon neutral. It has its own bad things. And if it takes 12 years to get to carbon neutral with your electric car, but you got to replace your battery at 10 years, you just like, do you never get to like, I, I have so many questions and it, it's not as simple as just like, I bought an electric car, right? It yep. seems great if that's all you think about, but where's your power main? What about the battery? How soon will it need to be replaced? Can it turn into something else that runs something else? Like, Oh yeah, it's crazy. And by the way, I just saw in the news, one of the latest hiccups that I had not considered in the electric car stuff. What's that? Crime where... Are, we, we've got a crime problem here in Portland. We make the news all the time. But now in the car charging stations out there, we have 
are common criminals, not only taking catalytic converters off of regular vehicles, but now they're going in and taking the wires from the car charging stations and stealing the leads and recycling those. So you pull up to the supercar charging stations and there's no charging cord because they've all cut them and walked off with them. First of all, I think I'm like the world's biggest pansy because what am I not going to do? Go cut into a big old electrical circuit, right? So yeah. you gotta be smart in order to do this, but wow. As far as the charging thing is already a problem, right? Cause you guys had Tesla on the West coast, like way, mm -hmm. way sooner than we had it on the East no coast. Question. So you, you know, you're looking at, and maybe it's not as bad for you in Portland yet as it is in Los Angeles, but you look at the people waiting in line, like an hour just to go to a charger. And now you're talking about the crime rate of people going and taking that apart. So now you're disassembling the number of chargers that are available to people. And it's already hard enough to get these chargers in with the infrastructure and everything mm -hmm. else. So gosh, uh, it would never have even occurred to me to, to tamper with something like that. Yeah. But we, you know, we have, I, and, and literally we're not gonna make this a whole crime story thing here, but <laughs> these are also the same people that are living on our city streets down there in motorhomes. And you can see where they go over and they have a cord coming out of the motorhome that you would more normally plug in and they've hot wired it into the street light and they're pulling the cable off the street light and they're pulling the power off the street light. And so I, you definitely have to be careful, like walking dogs and things like that, because you'll go by and you'll see the cover open on the street light on the side and bare wires hanging out because they just drove the motorhome off and they'll come back and wire tie into that. So you got to be really careful even dog walking in certain areas because of that, but you're seeing those same people break in and do that. So it's mind boggling to me at the risks that they take, but it does leave people that are trying to do the right thing, you know, and all of a sudden they can't find a car charger because someone ripped off all the, all the cables off the car charger to go recycle them and get the money out of the copper. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. You, you, wow. You just don't even think about that. Like, yeah. For, I, I mean, I didn't think of it, but then again, there are so many people out there who think of these crazy things, right? So this is our true crime podcast talking about yes. the true crimes of electric vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> They're harder to steal, but you yeah. can make them harder to charge. And so we'll just have a field of dead EVs because nobody can plug it in. Uh, if you want to go buy a car that no one wants to steal, these days just go buy like a mid 90s mazda with a five speed in it and that's the millennial anti-theft device because no one learned how to drive a stick <laughs> <laughs> you can see him you can see him driving off because they're gonna be like vroom, 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 trying to drive off in that thing so <laughs> when i was in college uh somebody got pulled over and could not drive their vehicle and uh the police officer that pulled him over went to then take the car back to wherever they were going to impound it and could not drive it either <laughs> <laughs> and we got a good laugh out of that because you know awesome. it was like i right people just aren't taught how to how to drive a standard anymore exactly. they're really not and so you're so right anti-theft right? <laughs> take all this stuff out of it but the car it'll still be there because nobody's still gonna be there <laughs> <laughs> oh man so 
you're like me, you're really into a lot of the techie toys and all the fun, cool things. And so we were at the International Builder Show together, uh, got to hang out on the on the home tech stage with you quite a bit. Um, what are some of the coolest things that you're seeing in the home tech market right now? You know, one of the coolest things that I'm seeing is that whole industry has changed, you know, and there's a lot of great things that are playing well together. But I think the first biggest thing is actually seeing the integrator becoming a trade in the house, just like the plumber and the electrician and the HVAC tech, that there is actually an industry out there, people that are taking that project from start to finish. And there's training, there's certifications. You're starting to see this instead of just being what I called the low voltage guy, you know, that was the, the home theater person or whatever. Now that is really someone that's on the job site managing it for a builder, you know, and designer, architect, whoever, that's really making sure that everything plays well together. That's the first thing that I'm seeing. Yeah, that is really cool to start thinking about how so much more of our homes are automated. And, and I talk about this a lot. Somebody said it to me um, and I don't remember where I was or who said it. So I apologize to whoever said it to me someday. Tell me again that you mentioned it to me, but that we had, we had passive house in the seventies where we had passive houses and active occupants that had to manage them. They had to physically manage the the heat load and open the windows and the moisture. And they often had too much moisture in them. And they had all these crazy vents and things that you had to open. And you had to kind of like Bill Nye, the science guy, your house, right? Now we have active homes for our passive occupants. And I think the home tech world is finally starting to take that on, right? As you're saying, and do the whole thing. We've got window shades that come down automatically. We've got, I mean, so many people have a, have an Alexa or, you know, the uh, other version of Alexa where, you know, things you can run your lights off of it. You can do that. Well, it's such a bigger spectrum than that. Um, you know, we were talking at the show and I think there was one that monitored the, monitored the electrical circuitry, which I thought yeah. was great because my 1977 house could use something that knew that the electrical circuitry was a little wacky, you know, how yeah, great would it be? Labs. Those guys are great. Yeah. How great would it be in, you know, in the fire safety industry to know, well, you know what, maybe you have old wiring and it's perfectly fine, but maybe in this one where it looks good, but you can't see what's behind the wall, you've got some circuits that are overloaded or having issues. And that, that to me is fascinating. We, cause it's cold here again, you know, we have people who want to go South for the winter time. And now we've got monitors that'll tell them if the heat inside the house drops below a certain degrees, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's got an alarm on it. So you can say, you can go away with safety without having to worry about it. And it sets off an alarm and you can call someone to go over and check on it, you know? And it's like, we're starting to get to, and I mean, not that we want to live with all this monitoring systems, right? Cause uh, I did think it was funny uh, while we were there, there was a monitor that you had that you said, I turned it off because in these, I think it was a CO2 monitor Yep. because in this conference center, it's nothing but CO2, right? All these people in here <laughs> breathing all day long. It's just like thing just beeps all day long, but it's like, some things we want to monitor, some things we don't. So, and we don't want to freak people out. We just want you to know when there's something that's different than the norm, like, cause the norm yeah. might be this and you don't necessarily need to know what that number is. You just need to know when it's different from that number. Right. And so yeah. 
that's the kind of cool part that I like in the home tech world is it's allowing us to be a little bit more passive in our homes because we'll get an alert when something is Mm -hmm. really not right. Yeah. You know, this is probably 2022 is really for me, the first year for the retail grade people out there, which is what most people use. It is really the first year of the actual smart home. Because in 2020, let's say, there were a lot of, quote, smart home devices, but they were really dumb and you still had to operate them. Yeah. Now, I was using my app to operate it, and just because I'm using it as a smart home doesn't mean that it's any smart. But I can actually walk into a room now, and the light knows that I'm walking towards the room because it has a sound monitor. It hears my footsteps and goes, oh, Well, it's this time of day. We have a light sensor to know what time of day it is, and we can see how much light's in there. You need X amount of light to operate. And so when you walk in the room every time, it's automatically adjusting the light. It could be 2 o'clock in the morning. It could be 5 o'clock in the afternoon where you got a ton of sun, and it's automatically doing that, and I never have to touch my app. So that's I like that versus having my phone going through going, where's that app to run that um, okay, there it is. I'm going to turn it on now. I just want to touch a switch at that point. I don't care. I don't, I'm not, that does smart. Isn't smart unless I need it to be smart. It's just like, a, and I've made fun of this, but I don't need my washer and dryer. Tell me what the weather today is. I don't. Right. That's, I, that's zero use I, to me. I say that every time I have to reset my microwave because of course it's on the one, uh, the one wire that is overloaded for sure. So it's the one that goes off every time. And I have to tell my microwave, my firstborn child worth of information to get it to turn back on and microwave something, which is so frustrating. Like I don't need the microwave to know the date and the, you know, like, yeah, it's great that it has the time on it. That's convenient. We've all just sort of gotten used to looking at the microwave to see what time it is. That might be the only thing you use your appliance for sometimes, but like, to have to put in all of this information into my microwave just to get it to turn back on to, you know, yeah, defrost yeah. something for 15 seconds is just <laughs> so frustrating. And we're to the point now where we're starting to see appliances come out. And this is kind of where the next jump is going to be on some of these things where you'll be able to take that microwave popcorn, scan it with that microwave and it'll go, Oh, you're trying to cook this popcorn. Yes throw it in there and it's perfect or this TV dinner or this, you're going to defrost this. We're getting to that point where that's going to be, but really the biggest thing that's happening right now is that interconnectivity between things. We're starting to see where, you know, we're going to see now coming here in 2022, probably 2023 by the time it's out, but you're going to have that Samsung TV talking with the train air conditioning system. That's now talking with the GE microwave and the you know samsung refrigerator yeah and that's where life really starts to change is when you start using all of the available you know temperature sensors or whatever you know that that tv has a temperature sensor in it to make sure that it doesn't overheat you know if the sun's hitting it or something like that okay it's going to use that because now all of a sudden that air conditioning system or the heating system will go, Hey, I have a temperature sensor in almost every room right now. Cause all these things have it and it'll start planning on using it that way, which is a whole new interesting 
thing that we're going to start seeing with all of these things interconnected. Yeah. So it's, it's exciting and frustrating all at the same time. Cause if you've ever had an appliance from like forever ago that worked really well, and now you have an appliance from now that has so much computer technology in it, that it only works for four to five years before it's technology is obsolete or something in it breaks because it's so much more sensitive. So it's like, it's so great. And so frustrating all at the same time. But there is something cool that happened here this last like a few months ago that I thought was cool. I think it was GE, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong. We'll have to go to the Google and double check that. But everybody, they had this range and it had like convection and everything else. One day people went in and said, oh, there's an update. It updated. And all of a sudden they had a range that had an air fryer option. And they didn't buy it with that, but it upgraded the range. So it had an air fryer program inside of it using the existing stuff in there. And then that LCD screen just had another button for air fryer. Now, all of a sudden, they got an, uh, a range update for a range that was two years old. So I feel like they're finally catching on to what, what Tesla was Tesla's doing. Tesla's doing, exactly. Uh, every, every time I plug in my car, it's like software update. And then I got new cool things on my car because it's essentially just, you know, it's a computer gets a software yeah. update. I plug it into my Wi-Fi and it's like, all right, today, now we're doing X, Y, or Z. And it's funny yeah. because maybe when they're, you know, they're still working on fully autonomous cars and maybe mm -hmm. my car won't have all the little things that it needed, Yeah, but it might, and it mm -hmm. might just be a press of a button and it might be able to drive itself with all the things that it already currently has, you know, like it's pretty, it's pretty amazing that model that they set up that your car is a, as it's worth about as much as whatever the latest version of the software is that you've plugged into it and how old your battery is because it's kind yeah. of this joke that was like, oh, you got to take the Tesla in for service and you open the hood and you put windshield wiper fluid in it and you close it and you're like, God, that was hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that's now granted, that's not totally true. We did have one of the cameras fail, but they came actually to our house and nice. replaced it. And then everything else is just handled with software updates. And so yeah. if there's anything that's a problem, there was some, some new um, recall recently because it doesn't make noise when it does something. I don't remember. People thought that was a safety issue. It was doing something else and it didn't make noise at the same time. So now it just makes noise whenever it's doing that. And it was yeah. like a click of a button, a software update. And now it just makes noise when it's doing that thing. And so, so much better. I don't have to take it anywhere. I don't have to take it to the dealership. I don't have to take it out, like take time out of my day and my work schedule to like go get this potential. Like if it was a physical thing in the car, like the seatbelts didn't work or whatever, you'd have to take it somewhere. You'd have to have a sure. tech to do it. But like most of my car isn't physical things. Most of my mm -hmm. car is a computer and yeah. they can update that from wherever they are and they can as they AI with drivers and figuring out what people do, they can improve that technology and improve like, yeah. okay, this is how people really drive or what they really do or, you know, how they really use it. Or, you know, we can put a heat pump into our cold climate versions of these cars. Cause that's going to be a better fit for colder climates. Or we got, I don't know, a new update this winter where it determined preconditioning of batteries mm -hmm. in a different way so that it could do that. Yep more efficiently. And so it's pretty impressive as, as the things get smarter. <laughs> sure. I think the only Achilles heel that's expensive on those is if you have put so many miles on it, like anything, it has a service life and you put enough miles on it and you got to go spend the 
twelve or thirteen thousand dollars on a new battery. Yeah. That's the only one that I go, man, I wish they can make that a little bit more affordable. I guess that they don't, but I wish that they could make that a little bit more affordable, or I wish that there was kind of the next gen life, right? Which is you you've bought an EV and you've got a battery bank that in 10 years, you know, you spend this 10 to $12,000 for a new battery for your car, but they've figured out the brains for you to then take your old car battery and plug it into your house for generational power. Right. Because that was one of the things we talked a lot about at, um, at the show, which is, you know, in your area, they're shutting down the power grid for safety reasons, wildfires, all that stuff in our area. We often have, um, grid shutdowns due to weather and ice storms and, you know, old infrastructure, uh, in major cities, they're shutting down different parts of power grids because of usage and upkeep and peak hours. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see this need for, um, backup power systems in a number of different ways, depending on what you're trying to do with it and that they're not there yet with the technology to change the brain of the car battery to work with a new system. But no question in 10 years, they're going to have a whole lot of car batteries, not just from Tesla, which rolled out a lot more vehicles. You know, they're just, they're up their production, but from all the other car manufacturers now also making electric vehicles. So, you know, you got to think about those and we'll, we'll dive into this because it's it relates to the house too. But you think about that big Tesla battery that's underneath there. Those are just all little battery packs, right? That you see, you know, that are, that are just little battery packs within a big, huge thing. That's cool. And all their little bits of science in there. It would be great if they could compartmentalize those a little bit better because, you know, all the batteries aren't bad in that. But if you could switch out, hey, two and seven are bad. Chink, 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 chink. If you could make it where you're swapping it out a little bit more like a a power tool battery or something that you could get in there, unclick, uncouple, and and still have all that science. But, okay, we're going to change out. All of it's not bad, but enough of it that it's going to create a problem. If you yeah. can get in there and fix that in a, in a, in a serviceable way, even if you had to take it to a, a Tesla service center and it was in there for four hours, it's going to be more cost effective than $13,000. And you're not going to have as many batteries out there being wasted, but you're right. We have to come up with battery storage for the homes is a bigger thing because right now that's the big thing we're failing at. I think in yeah power generation for the house, because here, I mean, we're doing great right now because we're getting rain in the Pacific Northwest. A year ago today, we were talking about red flag warnings and maybe turning power off. And, you know, we're going to get, you know, this spring, we'll get six or seven inches of rain, which is awesome. That's what we're on track for. We need it. But Southern California, they're in a horrible shape down there. Yeah. So I think you're right on how well that relates to the home because we often talk about, building for building with remodeling in mind, right? So like we're building for things that can be deconstructed. Um, you know, if you look at some of the old windows and stuff, they didn't replace the whole window. They just replace a pane of glass, you know, like how do we just replace a sash? How do we replace, instead of replacing all the parts of it, like how, how do we make these things that are 
smaller, right? Bite-sized pieces yep. that you can that you can kind of attack or handle. But you know, it's interesting, but we also have to do it in a balanced way that makes it common sense that there's common sense involved with it where it's not so expensive to do it that it's cost prohibitive. Right. Cuz we also see that with a oh, we're going to do it like this great example in the city of Portland, Oregon where I'm at. If you have a ho- house built 1940 and older and let's say you're going to build a new house on that lot. Let's say it's, it's, it's had a fire or it's derelict condition and it's more cost effective to put maybe two houses on and infill that than have that one and and create a little more density right there. The problem is, is that house now, because of the recycling laws we have here, you now have to deconstruct that house by hand. You can't come in and recycle all of it that you can. So what you have to do is come in and do a, you know, asbestos abatement, pull all the asbestos out of it. You got to do a, a lead paint abed, abatement, pull all the laid, lead paint out, and then hand deconstruct that house. I totally get the problem is, is in our market, we don't have a use for about 60% of those building materials because it's just not cost effective to take those old two by fours from 1935 and, and reuse them. But we've got to be able to get some of these things to be able to make a little more sense out of it. Because the problem is now you added $50,000 to a low-income housing project that is now much more expensive to build and harder to get people into. So we got to figure out a way to be a little more common sense about this stuff to make it make sense to keep housing prices low. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you say that because I did a podcast last year um, with a gentleman from Vermont that does, I think he was in Vermont, maybe it was in New Hampshire, uh, Vermont or New Hampshire, that his company is called Deconstruction Works. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what they do. They go in and they deconstruct houses. And he said his biggest problem is exactly what you said, which is they have salvageable things, but nobody to take them because there's nobody else who's doing what he's doing, right? And so he's just like, you know, I can often find people who are interested in having me work with them. And oftentimes I can come up with materials that are salvaged, that are great. He's like, you know, vinyl siding that you might want to take off of your house because you're doing a remodel might be really good for, for somebody else. Like it may not be at its end of its usable life, but oftentimes there's nobody to take that to do it. There's nowhere to, you know, even just like a resale or whatever. And so he's like, it ends up going to the landfill you know, they can have the best intentions in mind, but he's like, there's a market for this. We make money doing this. Like they make money off of these materials, right? It's just not an industry that really has gotten pushed forward and exists. So for you, it's, you know, it's just, or for us here, we don't have anybody who who's doing it. Occasionally we can get people who will, you know, take kitchen cabinetry out and take that to the Habitat for Humanity Restore, you know, some of those, you know, normal things, uh, they'll, They'll take toilets if they're 1.6 mm-hmm. gallons per flush or less. And if not, they go to the crusher and can be used as aggregate, you know, so, so there are like some things that just make sense, but. You know, it's interesting in my area. Great example. I have made over the last four years, probably a dozen trips with high quality materials to the Habitat Humanity Restore in my area. And every time they have been refused. I've showed up with two beautiful white Kohler pedestal sinks that were four and $500 pedestal sinks. And they went, Oh, sorry, we're not taking any sinks right now. 
I had some beautiful vanity cabinets that came out of my kitchen and bath showroom when I closed it down, that I took it in there, that were made out of plywood, that were custom beautiful pieces, walnut, white oak, things like that. Ah, uh, sorry, we're not taking cabinetry. And time and time again, I have t- gone by there and I actually quit going to there. And about half the time still, it's either going away for free or I'm having to pay to get rid of it because there's not a place. I mean, we've got a place here that's really good called the Rebuilding Center. Those guys are pretty good, but still, sometimes they won't take it. And I've, you know, I go to that charity a little bit more uh, and they've, they're really good. They actually have a deconstruction services where uh, they will actually come in for the price of the materials and deconstruct. So if there's a beautiful old house coming down, they send their people in and they're a nonprofit. They come in and, and deconstruct and take the materials and then they resell them. And then that goes to uh, community development and training and stuff. So, which is really cool. But yeah. So it's a, it's like, you know, the market just doesn't exist there to resell them. Like it's unfortunate for you that, that, you know, they're not taking vanity cabinets this week because maybe they've got 400 vanity cabinets and they don't have whatever else they need and they don't have any more storage to take it. But Correct. it's disappointing because you have this thing and somebody wants it and somebody could make money selling it. Exactly. But you just don't have anywhere to take it. And that's that's the part that can be you know, really frustrating. It's the same thing like glass recycling. There's no reason why we shouldn't recycle all the glass that we have. Right. Oh, we do here. Yeah. You guys do, which is great. But I think we, um, we were talking plant, yeah. to gravel and aero aggregates, which both grind up glass, right? They'll take yep. the glass that can't be used in the glass factories, right? Mm-hmm. They take the junk glass, yeah. grind it up, make gravel. And I think they said something like only 30% of our glass is, is even recycled, right? Like people yeah. just, you know, and so sometimes you just can't get the materials to make these new things because you can't get the recycled stuff. You know, it was so funny. Recycling it. We had a big debate this last year in the city of Portland because there's a I'm not going to mention their name, but there's we have a big glass factory here mm-hmm. in, in Portland, which is great. But the city of Portland was harassing them on emissions, on everything else coming out of that factory. And they were going to hit them with a couple million dollar fine. And it wasn't anything that was bad, but they're just trying to force them into upgrading all their stuff. And they said, Hey, look guys, it's not cost effective. We, it, this model doesn't work if we go in and put the latest 2020 stuff in. So you're going to force us to close, which was an interesting debate. And then all of a sudden they realized they went, Oh, wait a minute. If they close, there's nobody in the state of Oregon. That's going to take our glass recycling that is mandated for the, each of the well, you know, recycle or- companies to get. So they're like, Oh, it's going to get thrown away. So they went, Oh, we we're better to, help these guys as best we can, but let's get that glass over to them. You're better to invest funding in helping them to move forward with what you want them to be doing with the emissions than to say, do this or else, because there's a point at which you're right. It doesn't make financial sense for a business model. And then they're going to be paying to put it in a landfill, which you don't have room for. Land (laughs) is not unlimited. We don't have room to just be burying it. Aside from the fact that all the things that we learn about having done that for so long and stuff that, you know, doesn't recycle or whatever. And it's like, sometimes we have to think about the bigger picture. Yeah. If they were building all kinds of toxic things and you were just killing everybody in the city of Portland because of the emissions, then maybe we need to talk about glass recycling and doing different things. Um, one of the things I, one of the places I love to go, cause I know you love to travel too. Um, we love to go to Costa Rica. 
Nice. One of the things that I just sort of laugh about when I go to Costa Rica is if I order a Coke, it comes in a Coke bottle, but the label's basically worn off because they wash it, they sterilize it, and they just put more Coke in it. Like, Sweet. this is pretty amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't need my label to be bright and shiny. Who like, cares? I just, if the glass bottle is not broken and you can sterilize, it's the same like if, if we look at, um, you know, local breweries, right? Yeah. They make growlers. You bring it back. They put more beer in it. Like, oh, woo. it's magical. It's I love magic. my growlers. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's I know. Fresh, it's clean. And I had no packaging. Exactly. Ooh, that's what went all around. Exactly. And so somehow in the last, you know, 50 to 70 years, we've gotten away from a lot of those things and we've gotten into convenience packaging. Like, you know, we can buying in bulk or going to, you know, we have a, um, you know, a co-op, right? Mm -hmm. So I buy things in bulk that I can because I don't yeah. have any packaging. You know, I've got a container that has rice in it. And when it's empty, I go get more rice and put it in the same container, you know, and it's like awesome trying to, and but that's, that's not even, those are only the things that are available to me. What about all the other things that aren't available to me? And you look at it and, you know, I, it was funny. We, um, we have a transfer station here. So I go to the transfer station and I'm not sure if the guy, it was windy and cold and he was by himself. So I'm not sure if the recycling dumpster was actually full or if he just didn't want to man manage both the dumpster and the recycling dumpster because the recycling dumpster and the cardboard dumpster were both full and not available. So he's oh. like, you can just throw it in the trash or you can take it home. And I was like, I'll just take it. I don't home. like either option, but I got to take it yeah, home now. Yeah. I'm going to take it home now. I'm going to bring it back. So then I come back a couple of weeks later and now I have a lot of recycling, right? I look like that person that is yep. like, you know, whatever the guy's like, how long does it take you to to amass, you know, this amount of recycling. I was like, well, this is like two or three months because the last time I was here, your dumpster wasn't open. And he's like, exactly. oh, wow, that's really good. Like you only have one bag of trash. And I'm like, yeah, because we try to buy things that are either recyclable or are, um, you know, reusable containers. If yeah, we can. absolutely not possible to do that with everything, especially, you know, in, in the winter time, like we'll go to the farm stand in the summertime and we'll just pick all the stuff up at the farm stand. You know, like we, we do what we can, but in December, you're not getting the greens at the farm stand. You're going to the grocery store and grabbing them in the plastic container. Yeah, unfortunately. And I'm lucky here because in, in Rockland up here where we are, um, they, and, and really they're trying to push this all across the state of Maine is they're trying to get rid of plastic baggies in stores and plastic mm -hmm. takeout containers. So a lot yeah. more people are, are moving towards that. So we have a lot more, you know, which I get my groceries and we do grocery pickup and it comes in a paper bag, which is actually excellent for me because then I mm -hmm. use those paper bags to grass <laughs> and put mulch down nice below it so that I'm not digging up the grass and disturbing the infrastructure. Right. So it's like till free, whatever. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm reusing them kind of in their own little, uh, their own little world too. So that you know, it works well. It, it works, works well. well. It works good. I feel good about it. You know, <laughs> and and to me, it drives me nuts in our community here because Portland will go abusing after going after this glass company about the pollution that that it's giving, and it, it is giving some pollution. But at the same time, because they designed the system, the storm drain system in Portland incorrectly a hundred years ago, when we get heavy rains, we jump we 
there it's connected into our sewer system in parts of the city. Yeah. And so what happens is, is we'll get heavy rains. We'll get an inch or two of rain in the day. And all of a sudden they, they dump in, you know, 150,000 gallons of raw sewage into the river. Yeah. And I'm like, come on guys, if that was the glass company doing that, somebody be in jail. Right. So you guys got to get your act together. Right. You know, it's so. just, uh, sometimes the, 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 you know, good intentions are paved with disaster on that. You know, it's just like, we gotta, we gotta be, we gotta throw some more common sense into this stuff. Cause I think we'll get farther with it. If yeah. we can just help each other out a little bit. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, uh, that's a really important point. Um, when we were at the international builder show, we did BS and beer, uh, two evenings. And one of the evenings we had, uh, Dr. Joe Stebrick on, and we were talking about, healthy indoor air quality and ventilation. And, you know, he's been build tight, ventilate, right. You know, all that stuff, but he's also like, we need to also have a healthy dose of common sense about what we're putting into our houses. So, because we're not going to solve all these problems with ventilation, you know, we're going to solve it with common sense of the materials that we're using so that we don't have to ventilate as much out. So then really, are we just talking about, you know, CO2 from breathing and water from the everyday stuff, not just everything else that's in it. And so somehow with all of the cool technology and stuff that we do, and you know, you and I are both techie people. So we're really into that. We've also mm -hmm. forgotten common sense stuff to put into that, which is just like, there's a bigger picture here. There's a broader picture here. There's a, there's a point at which you, you know, it doesn't make sense to do certain things, you know, yeah. and how do you make that determination and evaluation? And I just released a special podcast because someone reached out to me and had asked, you know, how to make incremental improvements from like a standard house to a more efficient house. Like, how mm -hmm. do I make those choices? And then why should I hire a professional to help me do that? And what okay. I wanted to write back was, um, instead I recorded a whole podcast because, well, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you do. I am. Um, what I wanted to write back to that was as professionals, we haven't built just one house, you know, sometimes you're going to be on top of hundreds of houses. Like, you know, you have designed and redone how many kitchens, right? So you've sort of figured yeah. out some of these things so that when somebody comes to you, we can narrow the decisions down to, to, you know, 75% because there's going to be so many decisions that you have to make. And because I've done this more than once now, I have learned, I've taken that experience and I should be able to bring that experience to a better resolution for you in a quicker manner, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why you hire a professional and that's how you make incremental improvements because we're going to know specifically in the market that you're building in. Cause I don't know how you are in Portland, Oregon, but here in Maine, um, a lot of people building here aren't from here, you know? Gotcha. So like they're coming into a market that they're not familiar with, like what's normal in Maine, what is available in Maine, you know, what, what makes sense. And it's different in different areas because, you know, two thirds of the population lives in the bottom third of the state, right? So yep. if you're not in the bottom third of the state, the answer is different. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You, you bring up a great point because, you know, the climate you're in will dictate the best way to handle this. For instance, we are like the exact opposite of what you guys are. Right. Our wet season here, where typically humidity is higher 
and moisture is higher is September through June, October through June, because we are more rain-based. That is our wet season. Yeah. And then once we get to July 4th, it rarely rains until early October. I mean, we'll get a rain here and there, but there'll be days that, that you're almost wishing you had a humidifier in your home in the summertime. Yeah. <laughs> it could be 20%. It could be 25% humidity, which I start to get down in that low. And I'm like, that's getting a little low for me. I don't like my hardwood floors getting too low. I don't like, you know, it's hard on the house to have those big swings. I don't really like to do that as much because things move around a little bit more. So it's very interesting how we're kind of opposites yeah. as far as that goes. And if you're a main builder coming to Portland or a Portland builder coming all the way across the country to Maine, you're out of, you're a fish out of water because you're thinking the exact opposite of what's actually happening. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's lots of people who will bring, they go, I like this plan or this design. And it's like, well, that's appropriate for your climate where you get a lot of rain, mm -hmm. but I'm going to get I don't know, 90 pound per square foot snow load because I got to hold this up <laughs> because I can't get rid of it. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, and we have completely the opposite, which is in February, it'll be 10% humidity. It will Ooh. be dry, but in the summertime, it might only be 70 or 75 degrees outside, but it's 90% humidity. So oh, it feels yeah. hot. Like it's not really hot. It's just wet. <laughs> yeah. Our heat, usually summertime, we're in that 20 to 25%, 30% humidity, maybe. Yeah. So we're pretty dry. But I'm starting to see, too, you know, to bring this back around to, like, ERVs, we're starting to see now ERV systems that are measuring the intake, or they're talking about it, at least. They're coming out where you've got something that's measuring the intake of the air quality. Because here in August, if it's wildfire season for us, you don't want it to I'm be on. people to turn those ERVs off for weeks at a time because it'll look like it's the foggiest day out there except it's a brown fog you've got quarter mile visibility because you've got smoke and i'm sorry that merv 14 filter is not going to fix that coming in with all that's in the air you can't depend on that to grab all that yeah yeah so that's the challenges you have and i want to me on the smart home side i really want my system to be able to go oh snap that doesn't work. Or I, I, I'm bringing in, you know, makeup air. What are we doing to that makeup air coming in? I, I got to be careful. Are we adjusting for that? You know, I want that to be a little bit smarter. So I'm not having to go over to the ERV system going, not today, ERV. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right. On the smart home system, I really want HVAC to get some major attention recently, which is, you know, on those ERV systems, what are they monitoring inside or outside or both, right? Because we know how mm -hmm. to do that. We've probably been doing it in the commercial world, at least to some extent, not that they're yep. doing it better, but they've been trialing it. They've been doing that. You know, they, they know in conference centers, they have to have more ventilation because they're going to have more CO2 or whatever, right? So we, we do have stuff that has thought about it and monitor it. You're talking about the, the, major component system that's talking to all the systems. I mean, you look in commercial HVAC, it's like train. That's what they make. They make yeah. systems and talk to other systems, you know, yep. like carrier, need, same kind of way, right? Yeah. We need that in, in the residential world. And then we need these low load spaces because heat pumps are great, right? They're, they're great, mm -hmm. maybe short-term solution, right? Because 
you know, we want to move away from potentially running Freon through the whole house or everywhere. Like we're yeah. trying to do, we're trying to be as efficient as possible. You got one line set going to one compressor it runs, you know, as efficiently as possible. Most of that is outside doing mm-hmm. air to water systems, like really, you know, starting to talk about that. But for a long time, we didn't have anybody who was really thinking about how we heated or cooled her houses. They just didn't mm-hmm. want to get callbacks. So you'd have these systems that are like oversized and run all the time and they do all this. Well, we're also getting to the point where we can't afford to live in those houses, right? I can't afford to live with a system that runs all the time because it's never efficient or well, actually I want it to run all the time because then it's running at maximum efficiency. I don't want it to turn on and off. Yeah. My brother is replacing, he, he ran into this. He's got an old farmhouse. It's, it's a huge farmhouse and it's three stories high used to be the old it's out it used to be in, in a farm country it was the old green shawl in the basement and then the the top two and a half three floors i guess are are there but when they originally sized the system the house wasn't well insulated well he went through and did bad insulation spray foam in certain places where spray foam made sense got the house all dialed in but the problem is now is that it's so efficient that that old system he actually burned it up because it was cycling so many times it would turn on to heat. It would run for 40 seconds tops, maybe 25 seconds. It'd go up. We're good. It would get hot and it would shut itself off. And it's like, Oh yeah. But that was always when I was doing a lot of energy consulting work. It's like, yeah, do all of the other systems, then replace the old system that you have because now you won't need half as much system as you had before. Whereas if you replace it, because you have to replace it. Things on its last leg, you got to replace it. Well, if you haven't done any of the other things, you need to put one in that's just the same size. Well, now you're spending a little bit of time and you make those energy improvements. Now you burn out the new system that you just put in for exactly those reasons, right? And so it's like, if you can limp that along, even if it's a fossil fuel and you're trying to get off of fossil fuels, mm-hmm. it may still be the best solution to what you're doing. Then again, at the same time with solar panels and everything else, we're having the other great debate, which is when doesn't it make, what does it not make sense for you to add any more efficiency to your structure and just add another panel to the roof if you have room for it, right? So it's like, okay, you know, yeah, in an ideal world, we reduce consumption as much as we could, but that's not financially possible for everybody. That's not always the right solution. That's not always the best, like embodied carbon right now is this big problem. And so if you're just putting a ton of it into your house right away to get to that operational efficiency 100 mm-hmm. years from now, well, the next 10 years are biggest problem. So, yeah. you know. Well, it's interesting. And then we get into homes like mine where I'd love to put a solar roof or something crazy cool on this place. I've got trees. I've got 150 to 260 year old trees around my house. Yeah. I don't get direct sun on my property. Yeah. And, and that's that where becomes a challenge, right? Yeah. Well, that's where it gets really exciting, uh, which is we can't eliminate everything in every scenario or it's not perfect for every scenario. Right. So if we can put <sighs> solar on other spaces where it makes so much sense, then you don't have to do it. your space. You know, it's the same with concrete. If we can use less concrete in residential structures where it's convenient, but not always necessary, then we can Mm -hmm. keep it for the big commercial structures where we have to use it, right? It's the best product for what we're using. And so it's a, it's a give and take scenario. And so, 
you know, we get pushed back. Oh, you know, you're trying to do all this stuff. And it's like, we're trying to figure out where's the shuffle, where's the sweet spot, where's the, mm-hmm. you know, where's the good place to be. And it might be that we're doing some stuff that's not cost-effective right now to trial it, to make it cost-effective for other people, you know, solar panels, you know, five, 10 years ago, not cost-effective, right? No. People weren't doing it. And so then it caught on enough people did it they observed the data they put it into communities they started watching net metering they started to see how that was an industry available for people for workforce development it was a you know it was good for the community it was good for everybody was making money and they're like oh, okay well all right now let's start talking about let's start doing that and then they started looking at the technology um in 2015 i started a a five lot community with a, with a builder partner of mine. And the first house we built in 2015 had 20 solar panels on, and I think they were two thirties. Okay. Now, when we built the last house, we just finished the last house in that neighborhood. We put four Oh fives on Wow. five years, that much technology difference. And then mm-hmm. he just showed me that house was done in December. He just showed me, um, he had a whole pilot. Cause you know, nothing like your, your Volvo or your Subaru driving solar guy show up with like a couple of solar panels in his backseat going, Hey, check these out. Now they're coming oh, yeah. in four foot wide and they've got these modules and check out this black on black. And you know, cause we're, we're nerdy technology people. And so I mm-hmm. can of course go running out so I can look at all these solar panels and talk about it. And so it's, it's cool like okay and they're testing out different inverters and can this inverter get more power out of this we get ac power and dc power and how you know oh it's just it to me it's fascinating i think it's cool yeah it's cool the other thing when we put them on the house is i think one other little thing that if i was going to talk to the solar community is they need to do a couple more things to make it safer for firefighters out there because I've found out that, uh, you know, that some communities, they, they put the lockout on the side of the building. But the problem is, is that cable from the lockout still up to the panels is as hot as it was before they hit the lockout. Yep. You know, I think that there's got to be better ways to shut that down. So a fire fire can get up on the roof. If there's a building fire in uh, a lot of communities right now, if there's panels on that roof structure right there, they won't go on that roof. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you got to be careful with saving people on that. But it, house fires is not a common thing, you know, but also need to plan for those up there. Make sure that they've got a good path to the windows and, and that kind of stuff, because I enjoy the safety stuff, too. Yeah, I totally agree with that. 100% but agree with that. It's so. getting so much better. And, yeah, if we can start doing doing stuff that makes sense. I mean, we're, we're wind generation here. We have a huge up along the Columbia Gorge, it goes up into Eastern Washington around that way from Portland. You go up there and you see those massive wind farms and uh, man, those things are cranking out power up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool to see different renewable power kind of in different areas of the country and, and how they're, how they're making it. Maine, you have to be on the right side of the right mountain, but. <laughs> yep. That it's, it's such a big gorge and you have the big mountains that go through there. So all the wind is shoved down through there. Yeah. And, uh, growing up in a household, some of the new stuff that's coming out that's going to be interesting to see if we can do it is there is now nuclear power out there that can run off of these little tiny nuclear power plants, can run off old nuclear waste and burn that waste up and generate power. So that's something that uh, I grew up in a whole nuclear community as a kid. Um, that's why I glow at night. So it's really cool that I can uh, 
don't need flashlights. It but, must be yeah. why the two of us are cool because I grew up near Three Mile Island. Okay. Yep. So, you know, it made us cool people. Yeah. Technology. You we know, glow at night. Absolutely. <laughs> Always warm. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's too funny. <laughs> ah, so I grew up right next to the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. So uh, that was my thing, which is also the, the biggest cleanup site in the entire North America. But, <laughs> but you think about it back then, they would just, they were in the fifties and the forties during, you know, Manhattan project stuff back then they would have nuclear waste and the guy would just go, Hey, get rid of this. And they'd go out in the desert and get the backhoe and throw it in a hole and bury it and go, Oh, that's good. No one will ever be out here ever again. It'll be fine. And you know, 10,000 years, it'll be cleaned up. And now they're out there with scanners, digging it all up and putting it into a, into a, the, the proper containment to keep that stuff out of the river. But uh, you know, ignorance is bliss back in the day. It was, it was, I didn't know. Well, I mean, it's still now things that we create, we don't know what, we don't know what their, their long-term effects would be. Right. You know, you look at even not that far uh, back in the distant past was asbestos, right? It was great oh, yeah. material. Now they're taking all the asbestos out because it's not, turns out not such a great material. Oh, I have ads from like, uh, what was it? I can't remember which exact foreign company stolen today. And it sits there and it says with added asbestos for durability, it's in the ad, you know? Yeah, it, it was, was great. Yeah, it worked like great. Or Congolian was one of the big brands. You Turned know. out it just wasn't very healthy for you. Oh, well, <laughs> I still give advice to people on the show that if you've got that old asbestos siding and it's in good shape, leave it. it. You're not going to find a better, if it's got five coats of paint on it and you can put another coat of paint on it, put another coat of paint on it. You're not going to find something more durable than that out there, especially when it comes to fire. Yeah, no, I know it. On the outside of your house, that's what we say to you. Like, don't touch it. Just, just, you know, let it be. If it's in good shape, let it be. Let it go. And they make some really good cedar, or there's a company out there that makes a uh, kind of like a hardy plank version of it that matches it pretty well. So if you're going to do an addition, you can do it and it still looks good. And just don't mess and touch the other stuff and you'll be fine. You know? Yeah. Well, I think if we did a little bit more plug and play with our houses too, instead of this, you know, constant need to renovate and bump out and dormer and whatever, right. If we did like they did originally, you had the old original farmhouse block and then you needed more. So you added another block to the back of it and you needed yep. more. So you added another block to the back of it, right? Like if we, if we added on like a telescope instead of kind of all these crazy wild things, you know, maybe, maybe we wouldn't have to touch as many things maybe we wouldn't have to be as concerned with like all uh, taking it apart i mean i talked to you know a potential client i think it was last week and you know they had this beautiful little cape okay but it doesn't really meet the needs of what they need you know yeah. and so then you start talking about okay well what's what's the actual need was it you know and then you're just turning your cape into something other than a cape and it's like well why'd you buy a cape like yeah your cape, your, you bought it because it's charming or whatever. But now if we're blowing out dormers and we're doing all this stuff on the second floor, like it's not cape anymore, right? Like, yeah. can we add an addition to the cape that's going to look good with your cape that doesn't get into? And normally I'm not like, you need more square footage or you need more of this or that. But like, I also don't like disassembling things just for, you know. Yeah, especially when there's, you know, another hundred people that are looking for that small cape because that would be perfect for what they're doing. Yeah. 
maybe just get out of that one and go find something that, that or build something that's going to be what you need and yeah. not worry about taking that little home and making it into something else. Why don't we just let that be and move on to something else? That's my biggest problem with the, the sort of real estate market, right? Is the things that sell are the 2,500 square foot houses. And is that because nobody actually wants a 2,500 square foot house. They just keep moving because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually fulfill the need. So it's like, it looks like that's what everybody wants because that's what everybody's selling. Mm -hmm. But I look at some of the other communities that we have seen, and there's this one great community that there are 900 square foot houses and they're worth so much more even than some of the 2,500 square foot houses because mm -hmm. of where the community is located how it's built. And because some people just don't want 2,500 square feet. Like I look at myself, I don't want 2,500 square feet. The only reason we have technically, if you count my office space, yeah. the only reason we have this much space is because I have my office here, mm -hmm. you know? So I have two offices and you know, it, it counts like we live in 1,100 square feet, 1,400 square feet, right? Yeah. That's perfect. If or all we did at home, yeah, it's two of us. Fourteen twenty-five. Yeah, exactly. If all we did at home was be at home and we didn't work from home or have any of that stuff, it would be perfect. Now we work from home, so now we need a little bit more space. We're, you know, I'm either paying for office space somewhere or I have it as part of my house. Which is why we're going to do house. an addition on this place. But here's my catch twenty-two: is that we are the smallest house in the neighborhood with the biggest lot. So the problem is is that if I did a thousand square foot addition or a 1200 square foot addition, it would add about 800 or $900,000 to the value of my house. So on the investment side of things for me, I look at it and go, well, that's dumb money. Cause I can go spend a couple hundred grand. And especially with the materials I can get, and do some of the work myself. And guess what? That's a stupid investment if I don't take it, but right. I don't really need the space. Right. And you might have somebody else that wants your house exactly the way that you have it. They want a big lot and they want a small house. You know, that was sort of the joke with us is I wanted a small house. My husband wanted a big garage. Like I would have done that all day long. You want a four car garage? Yeah. Fine. Whatever. It's garage space. It's fine. We just, I, I don't want to clean. 2,500 square feet right. of house. Yep. You know, I don't want to manage 2,500 square feet of house. I don't want guest bedrooms that never get used. Right. Like for, for that, for the amount of money that you'd be putting into building a new house, like I can pay for you to stay at the swankiest hotel or Airbnb here, but two times a year, you come visit me. Right. Like, I mean, it's just exactly. So what I'm going to do probably on mine is I'm going to, I'm going to do the addition down the road here, but that will be I will get my office space like right here. I'm out in my garage where I do this. I will move up into that bedroom and I'm going to create it like the ultimate studio. Yeah. But one day when I go put the house up for sale, it can be that ultimate studio or it can be, uh, you know, another bedroom. Yeah. You know? And so that's kind of the plan, but it's still, it's like, man, I don't need that square footage except you're right from working from home. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If I wasn't working from home, I wouldn't need this square footage at all. It would be space that would be, you know, underutilized for our house. So, and the only reason that we have this, you know, particular space that's finished too is because the layout of our lot actually makes our lower floor walk out. And that nice. makes sense. Walk out yeah. looks at the water. Yeah. I get that. That's, that's usable space all day long. No question. Um, yeah. So anyway, Eric, we've been talking for over an hour, I think, and we could probably talk 
just like when I was on your podcast, we could probably talk for hours and hours more. We'll, you'll definitely see the two of us again. One, we'll probably both be in Vegas again next year. Uh, yep. Two, we're, I don't know. I just think it's cool to hang out with you. So we'll just keep connecting, but I appreciate you coming on the podcast this week. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to oh, hang out with me. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. Yeah. That's thanks for having me on here. This was, we've talked about this for a while. I mean, we talked about this months ago right? and now we're finally doing it. You were on our show and now I think we'll be doing this a lot more often. Thanks for tuning in this week on the podcast. We really enjoyed having Eric G on hoping to get Caroline B on later this year. If we can get on her busy schedule, check out around the house with Eric G and Caroline B link in the show notes for this podcast. As always, if there's someone you want to hear me talk to or any suggestions you have of a topic that you want us to cover, just reach out Emily at matromarch.com. Like share and tune in next month.